it was a pretty good formula. And I started getting tips from the husbands who said, thank you so much. We normally have to go to 15 stores and there's tears involved. And by the end of it, my wife doesn't want to go to the beach. And I think when I ask people why they like sales, I hear similar stories, right? Where people really love what they do. They love figuring out that formula. They love solutioning. They love helping people, whether it's (laughs) selling bathing suits or selling software. Hi, friends. Welcome to the Sales Enablement Podcast. I'm your host, Andy Paul. That was Megan Misiak. And Megan's the founder of a sales consulting firm called The Path to President's Club. And in today's conversation, Megan and I talk a lot about coaching. In particular, what sellers want but aren't getting from their managers in terms of the coaching that they receive. So we dig into what an effective coaching looks like or what effective coaching looks like from the perspective of a seller. We also explore why Megan believes it's harder than ever to be a human in sales today. And we dig into why when sellers have more resources, more valuable resources than ever before, why are more sellers reporting being so miserable? So we're going to get into why there needs to be new ways of measuring performance in sales and what some of those may be. So all of this and much, much more. But before we get to Megan, I want to remind you to subscribe to this podcast wherever you listen to it. And if you subscribe, we'd certainly appreciate it. If you also give us your feedback about how we're doing in the form of a review. So thank you. All right, let's jump into it. Megan, welcome to the show. Thanks for having me. Well, pleasure to have you. Uh, You're joining us from where? I am in Brooklyn, New York. Brooklyn. You know, I look across the river at Brooklyn. Not right now. Yeah. But when I'm in when I'm in in Manhattan, yes. You know, one of those places yeah, that's like I, a, a different world almost. It is, and it's funny with COVID. I had a friend move here, and he's like, "Wow, you really don't ever have to leave Brooklyn if you don't want to." And I'm like, "Honestly, for the past year, I've I've only gone to this city about." three times. So I absolutely love it. I've been here for the past five years. Yeah. Well, I moved to Manhattan in 2010. And yeah, I think in the first 10 years I got to Brooklyn, yeah, maybe a, maybe once a year. <laughs> yeah. And that was for Smorgasburg or Smorgasburg, excuse me. So yeah, I actually moved into the city for about, I lasted eight months. Um, of the 12 monthlies. And um, I was moving in with my boyfriend at the time. And um, after eight months, I was like, listen, I I need to get back. If it's either me like moving to California and doing something really crazy or just moving back to Brooklyn. Yeah. So that's usually the the time that I know when I think about moving to another state across the country, I know that maybe something is wrong. Yeah. Yeah, Just go back (laughs) to Brooklyn. That's fine. So uh, tell us a bit about what you do. Uh, So I am the founder of a company called The Path to Presidents Club. Um, To give you some context, um, I started as a salesperson. Hmm? And very quickly, I realized this um, kind of this formula. I I was very young, very ambitious, and I didn't want to just like sit around and wait. 10 years to be successful and figure it out. Mm-hmm. Um, I wanted to be as as successful as quickly as possible. So as I started like asking around and, and figuring out what the most successful people were doing, it was actually kind of surprising that a lot of them didn't know what they were doing or mm-hmm. why it was successful. There wasn't right. a lot of awareness. They're like, I've just been doing the same thing, right? So it almost seemed like a sink or swim environment. But I didn't give up. I was like, there has to be a better way. So um, it wasn't until I think like my third sales role where I finally had this moment where I was just so frustrated. I wasn't doing as well as I wanted to be. And my boss, um, we finally made an agreement that I would go to sales training. I was the only salesperson at um, this small local branch of, of this company and I think when I started, there had been three salespeople. They quit. So I was also his last chance. Mm-hmm. And so I went to Sandler sales training with the expectation that I would bring it back to the company. Luckily for him, 
I was very successful. I hit president's club in my first year of sales training. Um, but I also unluckily for him fell in love with sales training and development. So I was building, um, a training program on my nights and weekends, helping not only myself be successful, but I was, as I was going through the training, I was building playbooks and helping onboard new people as well. So when I was moving to New York, I was interviewing at all these sales roles and one of the companies saw the training experience on my resume. Mm-hmm. They said, we, we really like your sales experience, but we can find a salesperson anywhere. We love your training experience. Would you consider doing this full time? And it's been an incredible journey. So now owning my own company, I'm simply consulting with a lot of different companies. Um, I've been in-house in enablement mm-hmm. for the past five years. And I think that's also very differentiated because many of the trainers out there, um, they've been perhaps in sales leadership, but they haven't been on the enablement side. And I think that there's there's definitely a smarter type of trainer that's coming out from the new trend in enablement. Like these teams are growing so quickly. And the, also the expectations for training are getting a lot higher. Yeah, you talked about <laughs> reading online about some of your, your introduction to sales, which I thought was interesting. It actually sort of mirrored mine in some ways. So I... Mm-hmm. wasn't working at a swimsuit store. Um, <laughs> but I, I thought, you know, this great great line and what you're writing about that is uh, you said that you learned how to, your, your job is to help women find the best suit that fit them. And you said you learned that how to run a needs assessment solution quickly because <laughs> the likelihood of crying in the fitting room increased with every suit that didn't fit. <laughs> and I thought, <laughs> well, that's, that's a high-pressure sales job for your first one. Yeah, and it's amazing as well. Um, so I, I, my very first sales job was working at a bathing suit store in St. Augustine, Florida. And um, I actually had another swimsuit job where I was working at a um, surf shop and two very different experiences. Mm-hmm. The surf shop people were, um, they were taking naps in the in the surf bags like <laughs> during breaks and everything. But this uh, this other role, I really learned from the owner. Um, she was known for not just giving people some swimsuits, but really finding something that fit for them. And I think it's the first sales job where I, I really saw the different side of sales, where it wasn't just about making money and putting in the minimum effort, mm-hmm. but it was very like a, a service-based right. sales approach. And I fell in love with it. Yeah, I mean, my... First job was selling women's shoes. So yeah, interesting. People, How people, did you get into that? Well, it's just a job in high school. Um, yeah, but people weren't crying, which was good. Um, <laughs> it was kind yeah. of mortifying because this was in Wisconsin and it was in winter time, and right at the beginning, transition fall to winter, and so like my first day, a blizzard was happening outside. So all these women show up wanting new new winter boots. Here I'm 16 years old. And my job consisted largely when I was helping them try on boots. Is your 16-year-old boy, I'm having to squeeze their calves to fit them in the boot as I zip them up. I think a 16-year-old boy touching a strange woman's legs to to help them fit in boots. Yeah, it was kind of mortifying. yeah, it's funny too. I mean, I have so many stories from selling bathing suits where you're you're basically saying like, "Hey, let me just let me just sneak in, let me help you," you know. And it it also, I mean, it's a great example of um, having to build a relationship of trust. Yeah, I know that it's funny when we we throw these terms out like building relationships and trust, and all these things in sales, and the actual stories behind them are so much more meaningful, right? Like mm-hmm. I. I actually started um, getting tips at that job, All which right. is really strange if you think about it. I had, and a lot of times they weren't even from the wives; they were from the husbands. So if you think about, you know, people coming from the Midwest, coming down to Florida, they're not usually in a bathing suit. Mm-hmm. They don't feel confident. They're they're basic, like in their minds, they're walking around in like very little clothing, right? And so it can be a very emotional experience. And I started as I was, um, again, really honing my solutioning where I could typically find a suit for a woman in six bathing suits. Um, and, you know, giving her one one or two suits, 
seeing how they fit and then giving her, you know, a couple of recommendations more based on every suit she tried on. Right. Um, usually it was a pretty good formula and I started getting tips from the husbands hmm. who said, Megan, like I have never seen my wife smile about a bathing suit. Yeah. Um, thank you so much. We normally have to go to 15 stores and there's tears involved. And by the end of it, they don't, you know, my wife doesn't even want to go to the beach. Yeah. And I think that's, um, what, I, when I ask people why they like sales, I hear similar stories, right? Where people really love what they do. They love figuring out, um, you know, that formula. Mm -hmm. They love solutioning. They love helping people, um, you know, whether it's <laughs> selling bathing suits or <laughs> selling software. Yeah. Well, I mean, I, a lesson I learned selling shoes was that, is that, and I think this can mirrors in sales, is that, you know, we're trained how to measure feet, right? There's this Brannock foot measuring device that everyone in the world stepped on in a shoe store and you measure it. And we're sort of taught in about two seconds how to measure feet. And sort of the, early on, especially in the first day and so on, it was like, you know, if I measured a woman's foot and it was, yeah, size 10, I'd say, okay, this is size 10. And I wanted to make sure I was providing great service. But, you know, we all know our shoe, our feet are different sizes based on the types of shoes mm -hmm. we're wearing. You know, I'm an 11 in a running shoe. I'm a nine and a half in a dress shoe. And these women all knew that, right? So they'd come back and say, well, no, 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 don't bring that in a 10, bring that. I said, but I'd sort of be insistent because I want to make sure I was doing a good job. Well, no, 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 you measured a 10. <laughs> and it's just like, you see this in sales so often, it's like, We've got one, I know the process. This is what the process says it has to be, right? And it's not in tune and aligned with what the buyer knows or what the buyer understands, what the buyer wants. And uh, yeah, I learned that lesson very quickly within a few days. Yeah, and it's interesting as well because as we've been talking about our first sales roles, one thing we haven't talked about is even like what, what we've learned is not just how to hit our number, like how to hit a goal. It really is like the, how to interact with people, how to find things, like even learn from how, how to learn from our buyers. Mm -hmm. Right. And I think that's one thing that a lot of times in, in software sales and SaaS sales in general, we don't focus on. I mean, I've worked in retail, I've worked at at Michael Kors and like that was definitely a little bit more um, results driven right. because we had holiday season and we had, you know, every hour there was a goal. But even when we were hitting the goal in retail, it wasn't even about hitting the goal. There were competitions, people were helping each other. There was learning and mentorship. I mean, I learned from women who had been selling bathing suits and, and selling Michael Kors handbags mm. for years. And that's really what motivated me and drove me. Um, honestly, the, the number was exciting. I remember getting my very first, um, there was a competition at the swim shoot shop where you got a small bonus or a gift card or something. If you, um, had someone buy over $1,500 of in, this was a high end, um, bathing suit store, right. but if you can imagine it was, it was, it was still hard. Yeah. And I still remember that goal. Not, Big I don't number. remember the numbers, you know, but I remember the, the feeling and I remember having the receipt pinned on the board. <laughs> um, and I think it was in my first two months and I was just so excited to, you know, achieve that, that level and achieve, you know, that, that award and recognition. Well, so you thought then, because for me, I, Completely disconnected, yeah, you know, from sales. You know, I go through college. I really had no idea I was wanting to go into sales. Sounds like you sort of kept that idea alive that you thought you wanted to go into sales. So what's funny is I didn't even consider it sales. Um, I think that I got into retail because I wanted discounts on bathing suits. Mm -hmm. <laughs> and um, so when I went into college, I did work for um, a few more retail stores, and I actually quit after working at two different retail stores in the mall on Black Friday. I, I worked a double and then next I went in and I quit both jobs. <laughs> um, so for me, you know, retail was exciting because I, I was broke and got discounts, but then I worked as a leasing agent. And again, that was even more of a true sales role there. It was commission based. Um, at the same time, it was I was working with my cousin and it was such a small, tightly knit community. Mm -hmm. um, and I don't think any of us even thought about it as like true sales. Right. So it was interesting because after that I went into a commission only position, but I never, 
even thought of myself as a salesperson right. um, until I got more of the, you know, the SaaS sales right. job. Professional and sales And it's job, interesting. Yes. Yeah, yeah. It's interesting how now that I look back on it, I, I mean, even the first time I said I've been in sales since I was 16, it was a strange moment for me. Mm-hmm. But at the same time, I mean, both of us reflected how much we learned in those early roles in retail. Yeah, absolutely. Um, so you said that when your first job that uh, <laughs> you said you you sucked and had no idea what you were doing. So so given sort of the background you had in sales, why why did you think you sucked at it? Yeah, so it was it's funny because my sales leader asked me the exact same question. Oh. It was it was even a bit broader. Not not why do you suck so bad? Um, but he asked me, okay, when you started, there's three salespeople. They all lasted only six months. Now you're struggling as well. He's like, why can't we, why can't we hire, attract, hire, and retain good people? And my answer was very easy. I'm like, listen, you offer zero to little training. Mm-hmm. And there was also this weird relationship with trust. It was it was more about like, in order for me to trust you, you need to show results and then I'll trust you. Mm. And I'm like, listen, there's unless you invest in me, I'm not going to be successful. And I, I think that all, it's, it's really hard in sales day because I see this same mentality um, played out so often. Um, I, and a lot of it is coming from, you know, the past five years I've been in enablement where I would see people come in and they weren't the typical salesperson. A lot of times they weren't necessarily the natural salesperson right. who's going to come in and with very few resources, simply be successful, mm-hmm. be a top salesperson. Mm-hmm. That a lot of times was was the exception. And yet I saw leadership saying very early on, like, this person is not going to be successful. We shouldn't spend that much time with them. They're not a cultural fit, X, Y, and Z. And over the last five years, it's really been my mission to turn that on its head and to say, let's actually, let's just have a test, right? Let's make the assumption that everyone simply learns and develops differently. Shocking. Right. Uh, I mean, I I can give an example as well. Um, I had a lot of cohorts Mm -hmm. um, of BDRs that I would train. Mm -hmm. And um, I started using a career development uh, and coaching framework where it it was really just a very simple slide where I asked people, what's your personal mission statement? Uh, What are your goals? What are your strengths, your your blockers? Right. Um, You know, what do you want to achieve? And it's funny because in the very same cohort, I had one person who stepped into a BDR role and said, I want to be an AE in a year. And that was very ambitious because we actually had a senior BDR role. Mm -hmm. So um, she had to go through to essentially get two promotions in one year. We also had um, someone who was pretty, pretty green, fresh out of college. And he was like, listen, Meg, I am a little bit different. I have not had a professional in quotations, mm-hmm. um, have had a have, you know, professional job. This is really new for me. Is it okay if I just say in the first six months, I want to figure it out. I want to feel comfortable and confident. Mm-hmm. And I think a lot of managers would have written that person off saying this person is not ambitious, oh, not going to be successful, <laughs> you know? Yeah. Well, yeah, they've got 90 days. Right, right? No, exactly. We're, we're trying to fit and everybody into this box and say, look, yeah. we're on board in 90 days. And yeah, yeah, we'll make a judgment about you based on your ability in that 90 days. To your point, is is completely unmindful of the fact that people have different learning curves and different rate of... of yeah. And it, yeah, it's... This is, I think, one of the things that's, that I think is so short-sighted uh, for many sales managers today. Is And it's sometimes part of the culture, right, in certain companies, certainly in the SaaS world. Yeah. Is that, yeah, they're more concerned about the 90 days than whether they've got the right person in the slot. Yeah, and I think it really come, – I've, I've done so much thinking about this topic and, like, why – uh, why my view is so different. And, al- and also, um, my mother was 
in HR for companies like Target and Neiman Marcus. Mm -hmm. So I was I was having lessons and how to have difficult conversations <laughs> since I was in middle school, you know, like mm -hmm. with my sister. Um, and even when I was going into sales, my first SaaS roles were in payroll and HR SaaS. Mm -hmm. And so for me, I also come from a strong background of really caring about the employee experience and developing people and growing people. My mom, I mean, I remember her bringing home her, her mentees, mm -hmm. um, her friends. And I, even after 10 years, people like my mother would be visiting somewhere and we would go visit someone that she had mentored. And so for me, I, I think I've like inherently known the value of this. But in sales today, I think what I've had to reckon with is that sales leadership today is so focused on measurement versus de development. Right. And it is like, okay, it's a sink or swim environment, right? Where if you don't succeed within 90 days, you're not going to be successful. And the thing is, that is so harmful, not only for organizations, but also for sales careers. Mm-hmm. Right. Imagine, Andy, if, um, you know, when we were going into sales, they were like, OK, if you're not successful in in 90 days, you're out. I don't know if I would have been successful. No, I'm not. I, I would have been out. Yeah. Yeah, <laughs> absolutely. And so it's very interesting that, um, you know, I, I've actually thought about, like, why people don't really take this approach. And I've I've come up with even like a, a few of the key reasons why I don't think why or why sales leaders don't coach and develop their teams. Yeah. And yeah. And it's really interesting. I thought so much about this. I also did a, a training recently. Um, but I'm curious too, like from your perspective, why do you see, or what do you, why do you think sales leaders don't always coach and develop their teams? Multiple reasons. I mean, one is we just don't train them, develop the managers themselves to help them understand the value of it and how to do it effectively. So that's one. So yeah. if they don't know how to do it well, um, yeah, that's going to be problematic for them because they're going to default to, well, coaching is, let's do our pipeline review. That's our coaching, right? Um, so we're just going to push, push, push on that. Yeah, the second is is a cultural thing. If 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 it's not something that's that's valued or rewarded, by senior management, then it's just not going to take place. So what we're seeing is that, I think you had sort of talked about this as well, and, and something you'd written is that it's more about the reporting than the development, right? And you had a conversation with a gentleman yesterday that's interviewing for the show who you know, had a great saying that uh, from his boss, he was senior sales leader and and. Uh, you know, spends a lot of time sort of putting together the forecasts and reports and so on. And his boss said, hey, your job's not to report the news. Your job is to make the news. And I thought, oh, oh I love that what, so much. What yeah. a great saying, right? <laughs> wow. <laughs> what a great saying. Um, and But that's the type of mindset that we need to have in sales management because yeah. they think it's the opposite, right? The reason coaching is getting such short shrift oftentimes when you interview Sales managers, well, it's, I'm feeling pressure. I got I got to report on what's going on, right? We've got to keep that up because this is expectation from above me. Well, that's just that's just broken all the way through. So, anyway, yeah. those are a few other reasons. Yeah, and my list is so similar, um, and it's interesting because I think that we we also. Um, are in a very natural transition. I think we've been in the age of sales data for the last five to 10 years, right? As new technologies have come out, it, they've become more standardized. And also like our systems are talking to each other a mm -hmm. lot more. Mm -hmm. um, but it, yeah, honestly, in the past five years, we've just had so much data. I mean, even RevOps teams becoming a really um, common and standard part mm -hmm. of the, the leadership team. But I think now we're having to have the, the question of, okay, what do we do with this data? How do we actually leverage data to develop our teams mm -hmm. versus just assess and diagnose, right? right? Because we're basically just saying, okay, we know that our sales teams are really struggling in this area. And the, I think the, the next step, like we have our, our sales leaders just scrambling to, to figure out what they're going to tell the investors and the board, right? Mm -hmm. But there hasn't been a very strong focus on enablement and training in the past, or it's been more training versus coaching. 
um, which well, is very short-sighted. And yeah, training versus development, actually. And I think this yeah, is, exactly. This is, I think, is one of the shortfalls. Is and this is not new. I mean, this is gosh, you know, this goes back decades. Yeah. You know, we can read Zig Ziglar, and we'll talk about this. Is is you know, he said, you know, if you help enough people get what's most important to them, then you can achieve what's most important to you. I'm paraphrasing. Uh, achieve yeah. what's most important to you. Well, that's as a sales manager. That's that's really. Let's start there with your people. You know, what is? Make sure you understand what is the most important thing to to those person that you're coaching, right? And then figure out yeah. how you can help them achieve that. If you start with that as a baseline, then build your coaching on top of that. Then you have an opportunity to to really help someone. But that means you're in a position of having to help them, not just direct exactly. them, not prescribe. Is you know help develop them and. And this is missing, and I think it's a, a casualty of sort of this reporting the news versus making the news uh, syndrome that you talked about with all the data is people are in love with it, but it's really not being used in a way that's very useful. Yeah, and it's interesting because um, I think we're also trying to apply more of a data-driven approach to development, which is interesting. You know, we see all these enablement people coming in, and um, I see a lot of people just throwing systems and money at training, development, and enablement without really understanding what they're trying to accomplish. Mm -hmm. And I mean, I think that enablement without development and coaching is really just micromanagement, right? I see so many teams that are trying to incorporate, um, for instance, um, conversation intelligence systems just to, just to see how many reps are actually following the standard templated talk tracks Without actually, I mean, I ask them questions like, do you have a scorecard for discovery calls that's based on best practices? Are you leveraging it to coach people? Mm -hmm. They're like, no, no, no. We're just making sure that people are following the process. Right. And I'm like, we are not sales robots, right? And honestly, in the future, I think a lot of sales roles likely will be automated. Um, but that's a different conversation for the really complex, long process, like for these you know, enterprise deals, there's still this level of complexity that, I mean, maybe AI and, and, um, and robots will take over that in, in the next however many years. But no. for now, I think we're safe. And I think that um, we really want to not only tell people and tell salespeople what to do, but really get them bought in. And as you've mentioned, it's getting people bought into something it's in leader. I mean, it, it's in books from even like the early 1900s, right? Yeah. It's not new. Um, I mean, how to, um, how to win friends and influence people. There's, I mean, there's so many incredible books that just focus on these, these core human principles that people simply want to have a purpose. They want to, you know, accomplish their goals. Mm -hmm. And I think that, again, we need to remember those basic human tenets in leadership as we're starting to go into this next phase of leveraging data for development. Yeah, I agree. I mean, I, I, I yeah, I've, I draw this distinction and I'm going to be talking more about this and writing more about this is that, you know, a manager can either be a sales leader or a sales boss. And you yeah. want to be a leader, not a boss. The boss is, yeah, let's just focus on the activity metrics. I'm going to focus on reporting. The leader is, as you said, somebody that, that inspires the people that, that work for them and that helps them achieve what they want to achieve in life, which is the path to success. Um, it's always pretty much been thus, and I don't think it's going to change anytime soon. And but it's this is sort of like a struggle for the soul of sales management. I think these days is yeah. which path are you going to go? Because you can certainly opt for the completely data driven path, or you can opt for so let's say a data informed path that that uh, incorporates the best uses and best practices to use data to actually make a difference to move the needle as opposed just to assess and measure. Yeah, but I think it goes back to my initial question for you, which was, you know, what are those main reasons why people don't train and develop their teams? And I came up with a very similar list sure. as I was doing this assessment. Um, I think the first is prioritization. Mm -hmm. People, I, I mean, I hear every day from sales managers, I don't have the time 
to do coaching or these exercises, et cetera. Mm. I have to, it's funny too, because um, the most common thing is I have to hit my number. I have to hit my goals. And what I see in sales leadership today is someone walks into the office one day, they're a top performer. They probably have demonstrated some leadership skills, like they're respected by the team. They probably have some peer reviews as a part of the interview process. And um, they they might even be mentoring people. But it is a very different role to actually not only manage people, as you said, but to truly lead them. Right. And so what I see happening is the next day they walk in as a sales manager with a promotion and they're given some new systems and things like that, but they really don't have the knowledge mm-hmm. of how to develop their people. And um, I think that actually leads to kind of like the second one on my list is um, knowledge. Like they, they just simply do not know how to do it. Mm-hmm. They may want to. Um, but they have never been given training on what it takes to, um, yeah, to coach people, to develop them, to identify strengths, weaknesses, to actually align. And it's interesting because even these like general management trainings from HR, they're not built for sales and sales leadership is really hard because I mean, no other team in most organizations is as data driven And so I think that we, when we're developing programs for sales leadership, we need to actually address this. Mm -hmm. You can't just say, hey, here's general conversations like, or general management best practices, what a one-to-one looks like. Our one-to-ones are going to be completely different. So I think we really need sales manager specific training. And I mean, look at training statistics, most training, there's billions spent every year and almost like, I think under 5% is typically for sales leaders. Yeah, well, that's certainly my contention. I mean, I, I, if I was in charge, so if I were king of the forest, what, and yeah, I've seen a number $20 billion annually in sales training in the U.S. Let's just use that, whether that's you know, correct or not. But, you know, it's order of magnitude is, and yeah, 5% spent on sales managers, maybe, maybe. I, I think would, it's even less. Yeah, I would flip yeah. it. I would, I would seriously, I yeah. would invest ninety percent of that dollars in sales managers, sales directors, sales vice presidents, CROs, because none of them know, none of them have been trained, right? None of them have been trained about. Well, let's look at this job. This job is a performance-based profession, and I'd say when I say none of them, take that with a grain of salt. We'll just say virtually we'll as an example, virtually none of them, yeah, have ever received training in performance improvement. Managing people for improved performance. There's a, a science behind it. You know, there are some companies now that, you know, with founders that are coming out of sports science and sports psychology and have training in these things that are trying now trying to apply it to, to sales and, and so on. That's what we need, right? As, as we need this, this yeah. focus on, you know, sales is a, is a performance-based profession. How do we lead and coach and manage performance? And everybody's clueless up and down the chain. But yep. so we put people in these positions and we assume they know this. And it's what it really works out to at the end is work harder, do more things. That's that's the version of performance management that exists largely in sales today. Exactly. And it's interesting as well because um, I see the same trend on enablement folks, right? We have all this, I mean, RevOps is a, 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 has grown so much in the last five years. And now I see, mm-hmm. again, with this transition from data to development, we, we see the same thing with enablement people. Except I see this interesting trend where a lot of enablement people are reaching out to me saying, hey, I want to get into enablement. I've seen you've done that same transition. Can you help me? And and even people who are already in enablement roles that are saying, hey, I am in a very specialized role right now. I mean, even people from the top sales enablement tools, they're on enablement teams within those companies and they're focused more on the data versus coaching. And What's interesting is that I think another scary trend I see is that development in data, it's not data-informed development, as you said earlier. It's there's data and results, and then development and coaching is seen as this other thing. Mm-hmm. It's seen as fluffy and separated because of that prioritization issue. Right. So it's interesting. And I'm not going to lie. I had to learn this for myself because I came from, you know, payroll and HR where mm-hmm. our entire 
our entire like the entire reason we did what we did was because we we sold to HR managers right. who knew the value of it. Right. So it was um it was a big lesson for me how to actually tie development to data and to results. Right. And I think the thing is it's it's actually a lot easier than <laughs> than it sounds. Um, one thing that I did, I mean, I was actually compensated a, it was like 20% of my compensation was based on results and performance and every quarter. Yeah. Every quarter I actually had to tie every training that I was doing to results. Mm -hmm. I mean, it's pretty simple when you actually think about it. I just did a training though. And I, I listed this, this goal out. I was like, Hey, in order to solve the prioritization issues where people say, I don't have time for this. I, you know, I, like I, this is not a priority for me this quarter, simply map it to initiatives. And there was just complete silence. Mm-hmm. And I was like, okay, this is either really good or I'm a complete idiot. Right. And at the end of the training, I asked for people's takeaways and they're like, I can't believe I haven't been mapping training to initiatives, you know, until then. So um, even really thinking, for example, I used to do call reviews. I think this is a pretty standard practice, right? And um, especially now that we have so much conversation intelligence. But it's interesting too, because mapping training and development to initiatives, it shouldn't be that hard, right? But mm-hmm. I think that one thing I see is that enablement, people sometimes are more junior in their sales roles. And so they don't necessarily they're not as well connected. They don't have those relationships with people like the CRO mm-hmm. to even ask, hey, what are the top five initiatives of the sales team? Right. And that's a huge problem because if we're treating sales enablement and development like we are L&D, where, I mean, if you think about the key metrics within L&D, a lot of times they're like, how many trainings did we launch? Mm-hmm. What was the overall satisfaction of the training? What was the NPR? that's not how we should be measuring sales enablement and, and development. Right. We need to actually say, okay, um, my top five goals this year are to increase quota attainment. And that's why we're launching one of the big projects I do with my clients is what's called a sales skills matrix. And we're actually, you know, listing out every, every salesperson's, um, we're giving them a scorecard of mm-hmm. how are they, how do they demonstrate the values of the organization how are they actually um, performing against the promotional criteria for the next role? Not even performance, you know, metrics and their their quota, but like how are we actually helping them get to the next role? Right. Again, that incentive, um, and of course, how are, what are their how are they performing against the sales skills and competencies? What are their top three strengths, top three weaknesses, and how can we actually focus on those? And so you see too how call reviews. Let's say that discovery is a uh, we've used the data to inform and we've, again, done a, done a little bit of a subjective mm-hmm. um, assessment with the rep and then the manager. And discovery is something that this rep really needs to improve on. Mm-hmm. That is why we are doing call reviews, not because it's a fluffy exercise and and I just love wasting my own time, right? Mm-hmm. Which I think a lot of times is what managers think of when they they think of these like fluffy exercises. They're not fluffy, but we need to show why they're not. I think that there's so much frustration for enablement people that there's not buy-in. Why would there be buy-in if we're not tying it to the the goals? Yeah. Exactly. So I just want to touch on something because it's – You have this dichotomy or this paradox, if you will, is that – yeah, where you've got this, we talked before, we touched this, this uh, influx of data and how it's being used appropriately and not being used appropriately. But you had brought this up before, is, is sort of this underlying desire as sellers have to be treated as humans, right? Is to emphasize the human parts of the job that enable them to connect and, and do things they need to do with their buyers. So how do we reconcile that, right? How do we give sellers the autonomy, which I think has really become sorely lacking? And certainly in my my view, you know, through conversation on this show and other places, you know, hundreds of conversations, sellers, you know, feel more like they're operating more in environments where compliance is valued over performance, mm-hmm. ultimately, right? Um, so how do we reconcile that? How do we how do we enable 
sellers with the autonomy, the freedom they need to be able to experiment, take risks, uh, you know, learn how to become the best version of themselves as opposed to become a clone of some other person in the organization that everybody thinks is the top performer. Yeah, and it's interesting that you ask that because um, I think a lot of companies, are, are, that's the question they're definitely not asking. They're skipping that and they're saying, okay, we have this data and we know the gaps of each salesperson. Now we're just going to add some templates and tell them exactly what to do, mm. right? And the funny thing is that how many calls have you been on as a salesperson where you or, you know, people you're coaching where you plan out every detail and then it's the call is completely different than what you're anticipating. Sure. It's like every call. Yeah, every call would be that way. That's yeah, <laughs> Every call it has at least one, yeah, unexpected element. So I think that it's really interesting how we're trying to get sales into this very robotic um, expectation and consistency and compliance is how I see a lot of people using these enablement tools that were made for coaching and rep development. Mm-hmm. And the thing that um, that I would love to see in the space as we move from data to development or data informed development Mm -hmm. is more coaching and less training. So many times we're trying to tell people exactly what they need to do. And we are trying to, to do that in a data informed way. For example, I see a lot of people saying, Hey, this is the number one performing, um, automated or templated, outreach, right? Right. So just use this. Mm -hmm. The issue is that, I mean, BDRs, this is such a good example. Our standard is, our standards are so low when it comes to response rates, conversion rates. I recently had a team, uh, I actually had a a CEO reach out to me and he's like, hey, uh, we, (laughs) I've listened to a few of our sales calls and they're, they're kind of appalling. Um, there's several calls where our, our directors like didn't ask zero questions. Mm-hmm. And the issue is that like their sales, the, the sa- sales directors are saying, well, why would I, I'm still getting, tw- I'm still converting 20% of my discovery mm-hmm. calls. And I'm like, Ooh, okay. That's a, I'm glad you brought that number up because that is an extremely ro- low conversion rate. If that's your, Expect like mm-hmm. what is that compared to like zero percent conversion rate you know and it, even the, the thought that these conversion rates are good and that hey if I just like do this and don't try to be better then I still get twenty percent conversion rate I think that's a lot of a lot of how I see sales data being used in a really unfortunate oh, way absolutely and then this is yeah this is this is. Unfortunately, endemic certainly to to SaaS world, where low win rates at the end of the funnel are accepted because that's just what we do. And if I put enough crap into the top of the funnel, we just sort of work our numbers, we'll always sort of do 20%. And there's no emphasis on getting better. There's just always an emphasis on keeping the conversion rates where they are. And and it's this brute force way of, of... Unfortunately, a brute force way of approaching it that people, I think, draw the wrong lessons from companies that are doing it that way because there are some companies that are hitting the moment, have the right product market fit, whatever, that are succeeding perhaps fabulously. And they think the reason is because of the sales model, which has very little to do with it. And so everybody then wants to replicate that sales model. And I think we're now seeing serious efforts are sort of diverging from that where, you know, it's increasing talk about going back to full cycle sales reps. Uh, yeah. In, in certain, not for all, you know, if it's more transactional, lower price, sure, but on more complex. And so I think that's good that people are sort of finally beginning to realize that, yeah, the one size fits all that's been trying to be done over the last 15 years is not ticket to success for all, but a few companies that were likely to have succeeded in the long term anyway. So it's it's um, yeah. There's there's change afoot, certainly. Yeah, um, and I I think the big issue is that um, what we keep dancing around is that a lot of companies only are assessing data from their company, and so they're like, this is the highest performing template or talk track that works, mm. 
and they're not realizing that there are there's an entire network of of companies out there and there's so many different ways of selling there's so many different strategies you can um you can steal from right and so i think what this creates is this culture like this fear of the unknown and a huge fear of failure they're like okay why if if it ain't fixed don't broke it <laughs> that was not right at all right if it um if it's not broken, why should we even try to fix it? And the right. issue with that is they don't realize it's broken because it's the top performing mm-hmm. template or talk track or whatever it is within their company. But they don't realize that that 20% metric on average in the industry, the conversion rates from discovery is typically 30 to 50%. So they think 20% is good because it's the highest at their company without realizing that it's very low. So... I think that, yeah, like the, it's very interesting how, um, I think that a lot of companies that we need to really have this, this realization that, um, I mean, I come from a world of sociology, my, my degree is in sociology Mm. and it's interesting because I've never really, um, reflected on how sociology is all about measuring things that are not easy to measure. Right. And it's the same thing with coaching, training and development, where we need to realize that um, measurement doesn't have to come in the form of pure sales data. For instance, one of the, the the ways that I help teams measure their sales skills and competencies is simply assessing green, yellow, red for each competency. You do self-assessment from the rep, manager assessment, if you have enablement, enablement assessment of each rep, and see how that changes over time, right? It's not that hard to, to measure something, but people don't like it if it's not these, you know, like measurable data points. But we need to go beyond that and realize that not all of human behavior, and especially in development, is purely measurable. And we're going to have a very hard time transitioning um, over the next few years if we're if we're only focusing on those hard numbers. Yeah, well, I think that's that is the challenge. And we've gone through a period now where the emphasis has really been on, okay, how do we, how do we make everybody sort of mold them in the image of, you know, as you said, this template or this top performer within our organization? And, and I think the challenge for leadership now becomes is how do, we, how do we evolve past that and use the data to help each individual become the best version of themselves, which is not going to be the same as, you know, if Judy's number one seller, there's only one Judy. She does it a unique way. You can analyze what she does till the cows come home, and you're not Judy in that moment. And there's things that she does that that are unique to her, that could be very nuanced, that make a difference. Well, that's fine. There's still things you can learn from Judy, but you need to have everybody become the best, you know, best Megan, the best Andy, and so on. That's the path to consistent, sustainable success, uh, I believe. And we just need to be able to help our leaders, our sales leaders, understand that that's the right path to follow. Yeah. And final thought there. Um, I think why this is hard for a lot of sales leaders is that we we always preach things like agility <laughs> and even personalization, right? And when I say personalization, I come from the tech world mm-hmm. where um, when we say personalization, it is automated. Right. I mean, literally came from a MarTech company that focused on personalization within email. Mm-hmm. And the issue is that so many times, like our data is focused on lagging indicators of success, which is why we only focus on those areas. We're yeah. like, okay, your, um, your conversion rates are low in this one area, get better. Mm-hmm. But it, it's funny because when we try to actually apply that same um, perspective, like the data-driven approach to leading indicators of success, like sales skills and competencies, it's a lot harder because how do you measure someone's ability to adapt and their ability to create a really agile sales approach, right? And it's interesting because, I mean, one easy example of this is personalization. Um, I have a lot of uh, BDR teams who come to me saying, hey, I want to personalize my emails and I'm already doing a little bit of personalization, which is like, first name. And mm. then they're like, hello, uh, they're, they're trying to personalize based right. on their role. They're like, I see that you are this role at this company. Here's why, what we do and why it's important. Right. And, and you're like, Ooh, that's not very good if we're thinking about like true personalization and humanity. Mm-hmm. And so even when, when we, 
I mean, you can't also solve that with a training. You can't do a simple training on personalization, not in my experience. Most of the time when I even teach an elevator pitch, um, I actually do give them, I I teach them about the structure of of an elevator pitch and give them some examples. We actually break those those examples down. Mm -hmm. I'm like, hey, here's an example. What do you like about it? And what do you not like? And at first they're like, oh, I really like it. I'm like, wrong answer. Give me some things that like, give me some actual critique. And they're like, oh, I don't know what this word means. And, and they actually like digging into it. And by the end of the exercise, hopefully they, they actually know that it's okay to, to critique mm-hmm. and to, and, and not, and realize that like not any pitch is going to be perfect. Um, but even a week later, we actually have them choose an account and give a personalized pitch to someone at that company. Right. So I think that that's why I say that, you know, we really need to move from training and and thinking we can just give every single person the answer, Mm -hmm. training templates, talk tracks that are standardized and more focused on compliance to realizing that sales is very agile. People do need to be able to adapt to those templates, Mm -hmm. tools, and resources to the environment at play. And to your point, we need to give them the autonomy and the space to be actually able to do that and to figure out sometimes it does take a, a while to test out how they want to actually, uh, you know, their style, their, yeah, their pitch. They need to be able to learn their specific sales strategy. Yeah, I agree. Yeah, it's just, and it takes time. I think that's another thing we could spend another hour on is just, you touched it. Yeah, failed, short-sighted failed, vision. Failed, yeah. Failed managers operate from a position of fear and change is hard. And we've got this process and uh, yeah, people are too many people are deviating from it. That's problematic for me as a leader or as a manager. Um, yeah, we'll get into that another time. So, Megan, thank you yeah. for joining me. Um, people want to connect with you. What's the best way to do that? LinkedIn is the easiest way. Um, I post a lot of content. I also have links to my website. Um, and also, I, I always offer virtual coffees. If you want to dig into any of the topics we discussed today, figure out how you can bring coaching and, and better enablement practices to your company, feel free to reach out to me. Um, and you can go, you can actually even book a free virtual coffee on my website, www.path2presidentsclub.com. Perfect. All right, Megan, thank you so much. Thanks for having me. Okay, friends, that's it for this episode. First of all, I want to thank you for taking the time to listen. As always, I'm so grateful for your support of this podcast. And I want to thank my guest, Megan Misiak, for sharing her insights with us today. If you enjoyed this episode, please subscribe to this podcast, Sales Enablement with Andy Paul, on iTunes, Spotify, or wherever you listen to podcasts. As always, thank you so much for investing your time with me today. Until next time, I'm your host, Andy Paul. Good selling, everyone.